Hello and welcome to Media Literate, a collaborative podcast where we ruin the fun things you do in your spare time by bringing up all their problematic elements. I'm your omniscient narrator, Kim Henry, and today we're turning off the TV and heading to the tabletop. This week's hosts, Anne, Dan, and Sabrina, will tackle hegemony in Dungeons and Dragons. They'll explore how a game based in world building can replicate the same oppressive ideologies that dominate life in the real world, and what obligations players may have in disrupting those ideologies through ethical gameplay. Not sure what hegemony is? Don't worry, Dan will explain with the help of a book I basically sleep with under my pillow, the Bedford Glossary of Critical and Literary Terms. That's right, we're not just nerds here at Media Literate, we're grad students, and don't you forget it. Hello everyone, this is Media Literate. It is a media podcast with a bunch of us grad students. Today we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which is not a film. I, well, it is a film. <laughs> it was several films. They were not, they were very bad. We're not going to be talking about that. Uh, we're talking about the game Dungeons and Dragons. It was our kind of first major deviation from the cinema structure that this podcast has had. Um, this is because uh, the mysterious board producers that encouraged the show that, uh, you know, let it happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they let me pick my topic, which was wildly dangerous. Um, so as for introductions, I am uh, Daniel Hawkins. I mainly study uh, video games and uh, narratives and uh, interactive media. And so my role kind of up to this point was been, has just been kind of blithely listening and nodding along as everyone else talks about film and cinema. But now it's my turn. And I expect that on the other side of this, other people will be blithely listening and nodding along as kind of we pontificate. All right, yeah. uh, Sabrina, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Sabrina Sonner or Brie. Uh, kind of similarly to Dan, my area of interest is like game studies, interactive media, particularly interested in queer game studies and also like live interactive forms. So I'm excited to discuss Dungeons and Dragons today. And of course we have <laughs> returning to the podcast, Anne. Fan favorite. Hi. So favorite. I'm back. Uh, I'm Anne and Zhang, and I am in the same cohort as Dan and Sabrina. And I am the odd one here. I am not a game studies focused, but I, I mean, I'm, my focus is archiving and East Asian studies, nothing to do with game. But I, I love playing D&D and I have a long, long term campaign going on. So when Dan said D&D and I'm like, I'm down. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get into kind of like what that means as part of this podcast topic, I think. So I guess the first thing we should really think about is why are we talking about D&D on this media podcast? It's like a kind of a niche thing. Mm. Like D&D isn't a media. It's, it, I mean, it, it, it is. is. It is. Yeah. That, that was like our little, uh, my, my, my straw man, angry, <laughs> angry listener. That's my angry listener straw man that I was kind of, that was we great. will be debunking as part of this. But um, yeah, so if you're familiar with any role-playing game, which is what uh, D&D is, you're mm -hmm. probably familiar with Dungeons and Dragons. 
you know, it's seen a huge uh, recent uh, boom in popularity, uh, partially as a result of uh, its kind of central appearance in shows like Stranger Things. Mm. Um, it seems like every like cable sitcom has one Dungeons and Dragons episode as part yeah. of its runtime. Like, uh, there's the newly released film Onward too. Disney, oh, yeah. yeah, Onward. Yeah. Like, so it's it's culturally pervasive, and that's kind of one of the things we're going to be talking about. Is like to the extent that Dungeons and Dragons is a cultural hegemony uh, that is kind of like dominating its sphere. Um, We'll get into a little bit more of what hegemony means in this context and more generally later. I think it's a word that it's a term that comes up in our classes. And when the professor goes, yeah, this is the hegemony of this. We all write that down. And Ooh, go, yeah. We'll ask each Ooh. other about that later. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that asking later has ever been very clarifying, but we'll get there today. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be talking about D&D as a hegemony. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the relationship between the player and mm. the rules of the system itself uh, and how those things are mediated and like what the relationship between those two really are, both mechanically in terms of the rules that you're following as playing the game, but also culturally and socially, how those all affect uh, the experience of interacting with this medium. Definitely. Or media. Uh, it's both. Um, and uh finally I, I think we're going to get into how do we navigate games that may have troubling relationships to their producers and what do we do when we encounter design that is informed by problematic creators uh and so that's going to be going to be the, the rough topic of this episode so to give a, a quick introduction to D&D to people who don't know. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is a heroic fantasy role-playing game in the style of like this pulp fantasy uh, of like Conan the Barbarian um, that uh, goes back to the the mid to early 70s. Um, yeah. It's, it's a game where uh, players co collaborate on uh, playing, playing through a story uh, each player controls one character uh, that progresses as the game goes on, uh, both in terms of narrative progression, but also uh, in terms of like the power and abilities and the things they can do in the game. It all advance uh, throughout the course of play. Uh, the game is mediated by a dungeon master, which uh, is not a kink thing. It's a, um, uh, it, it is kind of, both a mixture of referee and storyteller, but also mediator of the rules uh, between like the actual like rule books of the system um, mm. and their application into the game. So it's, it's a very complicated position that we're going to be getting into a little bit mm. later. D&D um, was created primarily, uh, so among others, but primarily by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Uh, it, it was kind of like slowly built up from uh, different systems uh, and, and different kind of like just homemade games uh, in the late 60s to early 70s and eventually was published originally by uh, TSR um, and is now currently owned by the company Wizards of the Coast, which is owned by the giant behemoth corporation Hasbro. 
it is, uh, yeah, a little little fun fact. I did not um, know that. It, its tagline is the world's most popular role-playing game, which is kind of preeminently true. Uh, it sells, mm. you know, it, it it's a massive market of just this one game. Um, you know, uh, Critical Role, the, the, the live play podcast, uh, uh, Twitch stream, uh, that I think all of us have sunk a lot of time oh. into is, is massively <laughs> popular. It, it probably has more people listening to that than people who like would just play D and D. And here has poured hundreds of hours <laughs> yes. into listening to that show. But uh, anyway. And I, I, this is me editorializing a little bit. Um, but I like to think of D&D as kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe of role-playing games, where it's just mm. massively popular and it does the thing that it does best, but that thing itself might be somewhat limited. Um, mm. I'll, I'll, I'll describe that comparison in more detail in a little bit. Um, as is typical of uh, this podcast, uh, we, are, uh, we started off doing a BuzzFeed quiz. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of D&D related BuzzFeed quizzes. The one that I think was uh, the most interesting to pick was what is your moral alignment? Which if you're not familiar with D&D, that might be a very philosophical question. Yeah, right. You're like, what is, what is moral alignment? Well, moral alignment <laughs> is which square are you? And there are three good squares. Uh, there are three bad squares, mm. two boring squares, and Dan. a one wild card square. Ooh, not yeah. in hot with the hot uh, takes, Dan. So, so the three, the three good squares. So, so to, to give you an access, uh, to, to give you uh, an idea of what alignment in terms of Dungeons and Dragons is, um, uh, another brief history lesson. Uh, back in the seventies, when D and D was existing, basically in the form of uh, just a group of friends uh, in uh, basically Michigan that were playing in Gary Gygax's house. Uh, they were inviting more and more people to play their games and it was all having a good time. And um, they invited uh, a new player who uh, was stealing from the party. He was kind of like, you know, doing all of this, like he wasn't really behaving exactly in line with how the rest of the players were. Mm -hmm. He was kind of confrontational with the other characters uh, and all this. And so they kind of had to sit down and go, you know, rather than say, don't do that. They said, we're going to develop a system. We're going to codify the fact that uh, there is our team, which are the heroes and the good guys, and there's the bad team. And so, mm -hmm. uh, the system they came up with was law versus chaos, where the monsters are chaotic. They, mm. they are antithetical to civilization. We are civilized and we are lawful. And so you can't behave like you've been behaving because you're behaving like the monsters and we kill the monsters. <laughs> um, and so over time that shifted to a kind of uh, nine square, three by three uh, axis of uh, law, good, uh, law, neutrality and chaos and good neutrality and evil. And so you could be any combination of those two axes. So you could be lawful neutral, you could be uh, chaotic good. Uh, and it's one of like the, the main kind of most identifiable legacies of D&D. If you, even if you yeah. haven't seen D&D, you've probably seen the alignment chart meme where it's taking characters from a certain fandom mm. or franchise and mapping them onto their alignments. 
Yeah. Right. So this BuzzFeed quiz is describing what is your moral alignment? And its subtitle is Trust in Gygax. He can peer into your very soul, which is a very uh, weird, weird thing, so that I think. And we're going to get into why that's weird in a little bit. Um, I'm building so up a lot of stuff there. that we're going to get into. Um, and so it's got a bunch of kind of like moral questions that wouldn't be totally out of place on a Voight-Kampf test from Blade Runner. Um, real quick, like what did everyone get? Uh, on this. Dan, tell us yours first. Oh, I'll, I'll go first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got lawful neutral. Oh, uh, really? Which, which I want to, I want to read what Spicy. its description was uh, and who else it, it thinks is lawful neutral. And I'll, I, I want, I'm interested to see uh, yeah. if you think that that's an accurate description of me. You're motivated by tradition and you strongly believe in law and order. <laughs> you put a lot of faith in process and you'll often follow orders without questioning them as long as it doesn't cause you to act immorally. And popular lawful neutral characters, Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec. I don't know why what? that's the case. What? Um, that's okay. Lana sure. Kane from Archer, another weird pick. Um, and Spock from Star Trek, which is okay. probably the, the most reasonable of these options. Yeah, Spock is Still reasonable. a little weird. Spock yeah. has his morals. And I, it, I, we're not going to get into Spock right now, but it's... <laughs> It's weird. I think this is definitely the one where people go, well, what does that mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That and lawful evil, I think, confuses a lot of people. And lawful good. I think lawful neutral. is a poorly designed line. Neutral we'll, in general is confusing. Yeah. I want to hear uh, yeah. your... Uh, I'll, I'll go first. I got what I actually play in all of my campaigns. I got chaotic good. Okay, me too. So Yay! Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I essentially can probably only play chaotic good characters because I don't know how to play any lawful or evil characters. So, Same. but the d- description, it says, everything you do is for the greater good, but you feel like needless bureaucracy often gets in the way. You're trying to make the world a better place, but you really need to do it your own way. And uh, Sabrina, do you want to say the popular chaotic good characters? Yeah, let me pull it out real fast. For that, we have Daryl Dixon from The Walking Dead. I haven't seen The Walking Dead, so someone else will have to. Okay, (laughs) we have Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, which I think is interesting. It it doesn't not fit, but it also, I think you could argue that one. Yeah, it's weird. Um, And Hagrid from Harry Potter. That one, I think, is the most reasonable, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Chaotic Good is kind of like the... Most common one, right? Well, I'm just going to play a hero. I don't want to worry about Mm. it. I'm just going to play a good person. I don't want to feel constrained by anything else because I want to play my character and that character is going to be a hero. I think it's probably the most common alignment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would I encourage someone are... to take this quiz? Maybe not. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Would a lot of their questions encourage... were like, are, are you going to kill this dog or are you going to be nice? And it's like, well, I guess I'll be nice. Yeah. Um, Which is oh super God. fascinating. I don't know if we want to discuss evil alignments now or not, but like, I feel like the way you can play evil as a player character or the way some like character systems are built to be like, hey, if you pick this value, you're evil is very much not like I'm going mm-hmm. to kill a dog. It's like I'm going to just go after power for me and myself. Yeah. That's what I've run into recently, like making a character. I was like, oh, I'm going to go with this value. And my DM was like, that's an evil value. And I was like, it's literally power. This game is designed around acquiring yeah. wealth and growing in power. Yeah. But my favorite character I've ever played in D&D was a chaotic evil half-orc bard oh. uh, named Corrigan who wanted strength and power and he fiercely protected the people that he thought was of his tribe so like he considered the party to be of his tribe mm-hmm. and then 
did not value the lives of anyone that existed outside of that. And I feel like I played D&D as it was meant to be played doing that character mm-hmm. where I was killing all the monsters that I was supposed to kill and I was protecting the allies that I was supposed to protect and I became fabulously wealthy in the game. Love it. Um, wealthy bard, always a good, <laughs> good result. Yes. All right, so uh, Buzzfeed quiz aside, um, <laughs> let, let's get into like our first main topic here, which is D&D's hegemony. And uh, first I'll see if either one of you want to, I don't know, give a stab at defining hegemony for everyone. <laughs> you sound I do, like I, a... I do have, I have a, uh, I've got a definition here. Professor uh, Hawkins? No. Please. Uh, I'm, I yeah, mean, I so, can give it a shot. I just am worried they'll yes, take away my potential go. to get a master's degree after this. So okay, um, well, well, any of my well, professors let's, let's are not, listening. We don't, we don't have to risk that. Um, I've got a copy here of me and Kim's Bible, which is the Bedford glossary oh, of yes. literary of critical and literary literary terms. Ooh, um, I love which it. Which is invaluable to me because it really does got everything, and I've relied upon it plenty in the past. And it defines hegemony as uh, dominant influence of one class over another, the process mm-hmm. of consensus formation and the pervasive assumptions, meanings, and values of like, you know, one system over another. Yeah. Um, I think you could tell like at what point the quote ended and I was just starting <laughs> elaborating. At the top. But um, I think we can all kind of imagine how such a massive franchise can be described as a cultural hegemony. Like mm. you, you have Dungeons and Dragons and then you have every other role-playing game kind of existing yeah. or within its shadow or struggling desperately to get out of its shadow. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that varies uh, kind of region to region. D&D is less popular in some places than others. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm pretty sure Call of Cthulhu is much more popular in China than D&D, but that's, that's a really interesting. different topic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a slightly different topic. I think that's very interesting, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, I, I think that we're not going to be yeah, no. know, using our, our valuable podcast time to get into just like region by region, like yeah. what's most popular everywhere. Um, but I guess the main thing I want to, us to talk about here and discuss is like, I don't want to like pit sides here on like, are you on the side of the hegemony or are you not? Because that sounds very dire and like aggressive in a way that I, I don't think is really interesting. Um, yep. But like, what, is, what does it mean when your uh, interaction with a medium is wholly defined by the hegemony of it? Like, Hmm. kind of kind of talking about like you know what what is someone's relationship to cinema if their only films are the marvel movies Hmm. yeah i feel like i don't know the main difference or i guess the main point where it feels different from the marvel comparison to me or where i think there's there's some difference to dnd i suppose is sometimes you're playing through like Wizards of the Coast D&D's published stories and manuals and adventures, but you can also play the game without that. You can mm-hmm. play your own world and your own stories. And that's where those cases are more interesting to me because then it's you're still playing roughly probably in this world with some of these rules, but it's less like 
when I'm playing through a published stories, I can really track this D&D as cultural hegemony argument because even some of the more recent ones, like I'm in a couple of campaigns that have come out in the past year or so, mm-hmm. and I can really see these kind of like dominant forces at play through this role-playing game. But when I'm playing it like less established stories that are just my friends being like, I want to do a like queer pirate rebellion and we're using a D20 system because that's what we all know. I love that's it. Where it's, that's where it's harder for me to track. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I, I definitely agree with Sabrina on this. I feel like it's interesting because the longest campaign I've played and I'm still playing it is based on a completely homebrew world, not based on the D&D world, but it's using, I mean, the 5e system for sure, but the world is completely conceptualized by the DM. We're using class race and all the other rules from D&D 5e, but not necessarily the setting. So I think that's interesting of how, you know, there is that, difference there or not necessarily difference but you know people some people follow the rule books like completely some just deviate many actually deviate from the rule book yeah so i think there's a couple really interesting things here that i want to touch on both of you talk about the distinction between the the fictive spaces that you're working with like the, the fiction and the narrative that uh occurs over the course of playing this game um, but also this reliance on the, the rule system that mm. comes with D&D, that, that comes built in. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I kind of want to interrogate in the course of this podcast is to what degree are rules ideology? And so when you're using mm-hmm. a rule system that is designed by a corporation that has a, a kind of legacy that we're going to get into in a little bit, um, at, at what point are you bringing the ideology of those rules into your game, no matter what like the, the fictional spaces. Because yeah, yeah, I've also played in like, almost all of my games have been in like homebrew, like personally designed worlds. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, interesting. Well, yeah, I think it I, also like nicely ties back to what we were discussing with alignment, because I'm, I guess I'm thinking, what are the like if you were going to throw away as much of Dungeons and Dragons as you could, but still technically be playing with Dungeons and Dragons, what would you have left? Which I would say is probably your basic character sheet. Like you'd probably still have the classes they suggest, you know, wizard, fighter, rogue, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You'd probably still have the races, which is also something I think was worth discussing, especially yeah. with what Wizards of the Coast is doing or not doing with are there implicitly evil races but that's a tangent for later. And then Mm -hmm. you'd probably have also this alignment system and you could choose to play without it. But if you're playing like, you know, basically just this character sheet and these rules, that's that's what you're getting. And stats and skills and those sorts of things. I don't know exactly what what is carried in and what is not carried in through those. Like there, I guess there are basic moral ideas. There's the basic, I don't know, level up through gaining experience idea. Especially when gaining experience is rewarded from violence. Like that yeah. there is yeah. one thing that I think we haven't made explicitly clear. It's, it's probably pretty obvious to people who have played D&D before or who have watched it or encountered it in some way mm-hmm. is D&D is a very violent game. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> you're, there is an implicit assumption that uh, as part of the heroic fantasy that it depicts, you will be murdering lots and lots of monsters, some of whom are mindless beasts, some of whom are effectively people but the game tells us that they are uniformly evil um, yeah so we are going to get into the specifics of evil monsters and the game's it, conception of race definitely the 
Dan mentioning the violence kind of reminds me. I feel like for me, because I've only personally played D&D in 5e, 5 edition, I think D&D rules are very much built, like Sabrina said, is built on the character sheet and all the ability scores, but also very much so built on the combat system. Mm-hmm. Like well, that's where that- a majority of the rules are. Exactly. Like you can exactly. talk your way through anything, but if you talk your way through something, it's like, you know, two d20 rolls basically like Mm -hmm. two dice rolls for a persuasion check and if you're doing combat you have this like whole book of what to do yeah essentially so 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 D is divided into classes uh, of like archetypes of abilities for different characters wizard fighter paladin ranger all of like these kind of fantasy tropes Mm. um and almost all of their abilities are based in fighting like dealing, mm-hmm. inflicting, mm-hmm. reducing, removing damage. Damage. Yes. Um, I'm not. I'm not really interested in like making an evaluation of the role of violence in D and D because that's just its genre. Like I'm not going to criticize the Marvel movies for having too many superhero fights <laughs> because that's that's the genre it's taking, and that's kind of what I mean by this. The MCU comparison is that you have like heist films and Ant Man and science fiction and Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever, like as a space opera thing, um, and like Afrofuturism and Black Panther, but they're mm. all contained within this umbrella of superhero. And so when D&D, when you play D&D, you're effectively still moving through this space of like, there are plenty of different narratives you could try to do, but mm-hmm. it's all going to be mediated through the rules of for combat. Yeah. Because that's what D&D provides. And if you kind of don't use those, then how much are you really playing D&D in? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I, I think it's time for us to start getting into, like, <laughs> why might this be troubling in a way? Like, there's nothing kind of inherently problematic about what we've described so far. Um, I want to read a forum post from 2005 uh, by the creator, Gary Gygax. Mm. Oh boy. Um, let me Ready. see here. Ooh. <laughs> uh, this was uh, a reply to a comment asking about how male-dominated Gary Gygax's gaming sphere was back mm. during like the early years of uh, Dungeons & Dragons. So mm-hmm. Gary Gygax replies, there were never many female gamers in our group. My daughter, Elise, was one of the two original playtesters for the first draft of what became the D&D game, and both of her younger sisters played and lost interest in a few months as she did. In our campaign group that cycled through in a couple of years, 74 to 75, something in the neighborhood of 100 or so different players, there are perhaps three females. As a biological determinist, I am positive that most females Sorry, do not play RPG. You... I'll, I'll, we can one read more that time. Again. I can read that again. As a biological <laughs> wow. determinist, Ooh. I am positive that most females do not play RPGs because of a difference in brain function. Oh. They, can, they can play as well as females, but they do not achieve the same sense of satisfaction from playing. In short, there is no special game that will attract females other than other uh, that LARPing, which is more uh, socialization and theatrics and gaming. And oh, it is wow. a waste of time and effort to attempt such a thing. This calls to mind when uh, Lionel, uh, I don't know who exactly he's referring to here, when Lionel made pastel colored trains and train cars to appear to, to appeal to females. Uh, huh. The effort bombed, the sets were recalled and redone as standard models. And those pastel ones that survived are rare collector's items. 
so much for this topic. Cheers, Gary. Oh my God. So I just as go we... crazy when I see a pastel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So oh my God. I, you know, we don't need to spend so much time on like why that's ridiculous because it's kind of yeah. patently obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Gary Gygax was a misogynist in a lot of ways. I, 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 I think mm-hmm. that's kind of more clear the more you look into his past. Um, a very problematic figure. And I think ways that show in the design of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so less so as time goes on, uh, but back in advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which came out in the early eighties, uh, female characters had lower stat maximums. So their, their yeah. strength could never be as high as a male character's strength. I, I think that was like the most egregious, but like there were like a, there were monsters like, uh, I think it was a dryad or something that mm. was described as having an ability that uh, if a male character sees her, uh, he has to make a saving throw or drop dead. And it was like because of her incredible beauty. And it's just a lot of weird design stuff that, you know, that's ideology right there. And, and it comes through in the rules of the game. So when you, you take the rules and you play them as myths, probably not everyone, but at least some people did in the 80s. You're inheriting this ideology. And, um, you know, we've all talked about mainly playing fifth edition, which is the most recent version. It does not have, make any distinction between uh, genders or sexes uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what your character is, which is good. Um, but it does inherit a lot of other stuff that isn't necessarily, you know, from that same line. It inherits the idea of races and racial ability yeah. scores. Yeah. So races in d and I don't know if you've encountered this, but sometimes when I've tried to introduce uh, players to d and I'm so caught up in like my own understanding of the game that I forget that they're unaccustomed to this. And so I go, now we pick your character's race. And they go, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> uh, and um, so by race, it means in the kind of mythic Tolkien sense. You have your the, the, the race of man and uh, <laughs> elves, dwarves, gnomes, halflings, lizards, dragons, whatever. Like, Turtles. Like these, the, yeah. There are many, many, yes. Um, there, are, there are more all the time. Um, and <laughs> implicit in at least the, the original release of fifth edition, some mm-hmm. races are going to be better at some things than others. Yeah. Uh, dwarves are going to be hardier and better fighters than elves. Elves mm-hmm. are going to be better wizards than uh, the, the demon people. Um, ah, tieflings. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I'm not, I wasn't counting that every audience member is going to know what I mean by tiefling. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say. Uh, uh, halflings will make better thieves than gnomes. What, what, like, yeah. All of these kind of assumptions that, go back to the earliest stages of D&D that, that themselves come from Tolkien, uh, uh-huh. whatever other fantasy sources they were working from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think it's a huge leap to think about how that conception of race might be troubling, especially when you consider Tolkien himself, not to get into another history lesson, because I, I don't think that's what this <laughs> podcast is about, but mm-hmm. you know, Tolkien referred many times to his orcs as 
mongoloid and Mm -hmm. uh, described them as having a lot of like slanted eyes and and Mm -hmm. like these racist um, uh, depictions. And uh, and so D&D inherits from that, even though like at this point, their orcs are very different. Yeah. Kind of a semantic difference in my mind that's worth mentioning. Um, uh, but like, you know, the half-orc player race has the ability savage attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and so there's still this ideology that's pervading through the system itself. And so yeah. when you play D&D, you're interacting and negotiating with that system. And I, I don't know, I, I've been talking for a while. I kind of want to hear <laughs> no, your no, thoughts no. on... I think that's um, a good introduction to the race system and also how problematic the, <laughs> the creator of the of the game can be. I have never seen that quote, so thank you for bringing that into my attention, but that was a lot. Um, no, I was going to say it's interesting because to me, D&D, because I don't think I've played as long as uh, either of you. I've only played D&D for like since college, so it's like two and a half years maybe so I'm still a new person to D&D but I my favorite part Sabrina's laughing but (laughs) I've only played two and a half years I simply couldn't get into the nuances (laughs) like who would say that about a movie Uh you know that's just what I was thinking about but that's 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 the I think that's the charismatic part of this game um sorry the digressive but going back back to my point uh I was gonna say my favorite part of this game is the rule bending like no matter how how to me no matter how hegemonic or how problematic some of the origins are and also the fact that i was going to mention the human race itself is divided also into races and the description there is another whole other level of problematic yes. actually yeah so, so you mean yeah. just to, to clarify when you open the player's handbook of dungeons and dragons and you flip to the page where it says humans it describes yeah. a bunch of different fictional peoples of the the pre-baked yeah dnd yeah world mm-hmm. but they correspond to certain race in real life actually i think um however yeah here's our african analog here's yeah. our asian and here's analog. the asian analog that's called mulan sorry i just very salty yeah, about it's that called, it's, called, it's mulan. called mulan the whole um, race is called mulan yike <laughs> but way back uh i i own a copy of Oriental Adventures, the oh, AD&D wonderful. supplement from <laughs> oh boy. Uh, the 80s. What a lucky man you are, Dan. I, I think the most generous interpretation is it was written earnestly, but it is very bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think what Anne was getting at with the like, you know, that you can bend the rules is mm-hmm. one of the interesting things to consider about tabletop role-playing games. And, and I don't know if you want me to keep going or if you had yeah, the end please of do. thought there. But like, because like, if you were going to put in like a video game RPG, right? Like an, a similar adventure in like D&D mm-hmm. or in your video game, you would only be able to do what the designer said you can do. Like mm-hmm. whatever's programmed, there's what you get. Whereas whatever's, I guess, programmed into D&D is the rule book that then the dungeon Mm -hmm. master which is a rule dan spoke about earlier Mm -hmm. can interpret or discuss so basically if you don't like a rule or a system or if you don't like something you don't have to play with it i don't know if that makes it more i guess insidious because like then the onus is on the players to you know you can make that decision but then you have that responsibility yeah 
or if it's better because you can cut out something you don't want. Yeah. Is this yeah. in any way analogous to any other media relationship we have where you kind of have to cut out the problematic or troubling stuff to really enjoy something? Like it's like watching an old movie or something or and it's like, man, Lawrence Arabia mm. is good. That guy's in blackface. I, I think to me, it is a little different because to me, I feel like I never, well, this is going to sound like I don't, I hate D&D, but I do not hate D&D. But <laughs> I, I, I say I hate D&D <laughs> all the time. Please continue in. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't think I respect D&D's like actual rule book that much. I just don't have that much like player respect to us because I don't think it is the rule that actually governs our game. What governs our game is the discussion between me and the DM and then among players outside the game that we determine some of the rules are going to apply, some of the rules are not going to apply. I think those are the building blocks of, like, in my mind, how D&D is not actually the hegemony, hegemony from the rule book. So I, it's going to sound bad, but I don't think I respect the rule book at all. <laughs> so. well- I feel like if we wanted to very poorly carry this analogy of Lawrence of Arabia through, we could say it's like if I were to just take the scene, like the scenes with blackface and cut them out and then put my own version in almost. Mm. Yeah. And maybe make not it that directly, but maybe. Yeah. I'm, I think we got at something very interesting here where there's kind of a, a hierarchy of power mm-hmm. in a way where um, you have the corporation Hasbro that owns D&D. Mm. Uh, and then you have Wizards of the Coast and the designers who constructed the rule system, produced the books, made the layout, designed the rules. And then you have the community and the content creators. So like all of the different forums, message boards and YouTube channels and Twitch streams uh, mm-hmm. that inform a lot of the player base. And then you have the table, which exists and, and it's kind of... <laughs> what we in game studies might describe as the magic circle, mm. uh, which is a third level uh, conjuration spell. And um, <laughs> where it, it exists- Nobody's gonna laugh almost, at this joke. It arguably independently of uh, the, the rest of this, but then even within mm. the table, you have the dungeon master who is in a hierarchical position with relation to the rest of the players. And so like, is, is there a point where the influence stops? Like, mm-hmm. even if you're saying, well, we're going to take these, these rules from D&D, um, but we're going we're gonna to take out what we like and burn the rest or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, do, does that like, you're still giving money to Wizards yeah. of the Coast and to Hasbro yeah. and to these corporations when you're doing that. Like, like when you buy the books, you can, you can play D&D for free as you should. <laughs> But you still contribute to its influence, right? Yeah, like but, I think cutting out the monetary you're, you're argument still, goes so like, far. Yeah. You're, you're still, the hegemony still exists when you're taking the parts you don't like uh, mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're removing them. Because that excisement that you're making, like that, that cutting away that you're doing, mm. that only goes as far as your table. So while you're, mm. you're, you're, that limitation goes both ways then. You're limiting... The, the negative influence that's coming down the ladder from the top of the hierarchy down. Mm-hmm. But you're also reducing the amount, like the, the, first, the furthest that that can get is like the community uh, as you kind of like, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, what, share kind of virally true. this interpretation of the game. 
what's interesting to me in that comment is the it's the because I'm not a game studies major, so none of this is all of this is new to me. I'm very excited. But the idea of the table, it, although it it is just a fragment of the hegemony you've just described, I think it's it 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 is part of that like larger hegemony. However, it is also in itself a whole world. Like it is everything for your character, right? Like the thing you decide on the table determines essentially everything that's going to happen in the game, and. If you're playing this game, doesn't isn't that enough? I guess I'm not really. I'm proposing this question. I don't have an answer to it. But like, if you can determine your own world on that table, is that enough for you as a person to be, you know, ethically playing this game? If that makes yeah, any sense. I think that's the central question that we're we're struggling to answer here. Like, how do you reconcile this relationship between a deeply communal and social and、mm. Like personal activity,、uh, that's a, a hobby for like many millions of people, with the, the kind of troubling stuff that we've kind of described and hinted at. Like, how is that relationship、uh, functioning?、Mm. It, and like, what is the responsibility of the players to reconcile themselves to that?、Mm. Like, you can play D and D by the book and have a perfectly like. Healthy and progressive game <laughs> that like doesn't get racist or misogynist. Or <laughs> like most tables do that. Like I'm not trying to say that that it would be ridiculous of me to say that、um, players of D and D are, you know, engaging in oppression or whatever. Like that's、mm-hmm. not the, that's not the argument. It, it's I think it's a lot lower stakes than that.、Mm-hmm. But、um, it, it's still something that I'm just kind of like trying to find an answer to. Well, I'm、yeah. trying to think about, I guess, when those moments come up for me. Because the typical play cycle I've had with various campaigns has been less like, okay, let's sit down with the rule books in the world and decide what we want to do, and has more been like the DM will bring something in, the players will roll up characters, and we'll play through and like you know interact with the rules as we need to、mm. and as they come up, and then occasionally something will come up that is. Problematic, or that, like you know, oh, that is not what we want to do. That feels racist, sexist, whatever. And、mm-hmm. I'm trying to think about those moments, and, like what is happening at the table? What's the process? Like, is that beneficial to anyone, or is that just uncomfortable for anyone?、Mm-hmm. I think that also I, might be if you're looking at like the idea of the magic circle and those sorts of things, like almost where you see those fractures in it. Like you're in the game, and then you have to stop the game to deal with it.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think an excellent example of this is if you've played through the published adventure *The Curse of Strahd*, which、mm. uh, takes place in a classic D and D setting called Ravenloft, which、mm. is very much based off of this like classic vampire myth. And featured prominently in this adventure are the Vistani, a、mm-hmm. group of barely laundered Romani stereotypes. Yeah,、uh, they are. Basically, I th- I think maybe even literally described as being gypsy like. Yeah. They are, uh, they are described as being like alcoholic or or like untrustworthy,、mm-hmm. and they baked into the adventure. They betray the party, and、uh, they're supposed to be just like scoundrel,、uh, minor antagonists who secretly serve the vampire,、mm. and. Uh, to their credit, Wizards of the Coast went back recently and said, maybe that wasn't the greatest thing. And so <laughs> they put out put out a a revised version, 
as part of their collector's edition Curse of Strahd. <laughs> so and let's so, make more money and off so of our it was, mistakes. It was a reprint, but also <laughs> another publishing, like another product that they took over. So ah, I don't know the if irony. it's actually to their credit. Um, Dan, do you remember when that version came out? Uh, the original Curse of Strahd? Or the, or the revisited the, the re- one? Uh, I would, I think it was either 2019 or 2018. Okay. I think it was... The source Some... of my question is that I'm playing through like Icewind Dale, which is like a, which is a late 2019, yeah. popular 2020. Icewind Dale is the most recent. Yeah. yeah. But basically, and we haven't gotten to the end of this plot line. So I could, maybe they'll correct me, but like currently one of the antagonists we're looking at is a Dwergar, who is a dark dwarf, which is part of this ah. thing they do where they're like, oh, these are the good races and these are the dark skinned versions mm-hmm. of them that are inherently evil. Yes. So uh-huh. I was just curious if they had like, changed and it didn't seem like they had based on this encounter i've had uh there despite their recent pushes there are still just evil races according to the rules of dungeons and dragons yeah there are the drow the dark elves who are dark-skinned elves who if you've had the pleasure of reading the 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 novels by ra salvatore like i have (laughs) <laughs> um, you would know that a lot of their evil comes from the fact that they are an explicitly matriarchal and female-dominated <laughs> society. Yep. Uh, and during the 80s, they were basically just illustrated as being Black people. Like, they are, they were just, like, not even the Terrible. purple weird shit uh, that they have now. It's just, yeah. like, they are mm-hmm. dark-skinned elves. Um, Dwergar are another example of this, where they're like, what can we do to dwarves. show that these elves, that these dwarves are evil? Well, we'll make them dark-skinned and throw them underground where they belong. It's the most glaring when you have like their depiction of human peoples, like the Vistani. But it, it's you know you have the Yuan-Ti, these snake uh-huh. people, which are like just yellow peril. I was stereotypes. gonna say, yep. <laughs> um, and so it you you crack open the monster manual, the, the book of like published monsters, yeah. and you know. You've got like a 50-50 shot at coming on something weird. <laughs> yep, um, yep. That's, that's so accurate. Uh, and it's so it's like, 50% racist, 50% furry, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, and so like what, what is the responsibility of the players? That's kind of like our, our final push to like, yeah. you know, cap off this episode. Like what is the responsibility of the players to negotiate that legacy of design? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that's, I, you know, it's yeah. in the rules that you're playing. Mm-hmm, definitely. I think an interesting, so this is, this is me being the critical role fan, but <laughs> I think a very interesting example of how to kind of combat that stereotype and the 50-50 chance that you come into something weird and sexist and racist in the monster menu is Matt Mercer in Critical Role actually designed a whole society that's just, monster based and uh it's in the recent second campaign that they're doing and they the most of the well more than half of the player characters are from the human empire and the other half is from somewhere else or is from the dynasty which is the monster empire and there's political conflicts and um like interesting uh, confrontations is built into the storyline that the players has to explore so i think that's a very interesting example to i guess to how to approach approach this topic which is you know 
also yeah. done by a pretty big show so that was um at least have some influence i guess yeah i think it's so so i guess what that is it's like that's the the uphill struggle here of mm -hmm. reversing the the power and just yeah, bringing it from and the, the table mm -hmm. to the community and try to influence the designers from the community yeah I, i'm wondering if there's anything else serena what, what do you have any thoughts on this mm -hmm. i guess like to your initial question like what is the responsibility etc i think that is where it feels i guess where it I don't know. That's where it feels like hard to play D and D because the default is you're playing with these like racist rules or with these like outdated things, and then it puts the responsibility on the player or the group or the individual mm -hmm. to push back against it. Like how Critical Role has done, which is like great, but it like took Matt Mercer saying, "Okay, we're gonna play differently." Like it yeah. takes that responsibility of the design. Like you know, it, it basically it shifts the responsibility to the consumer, which I think is something I'm always very hesitant of because kind of as we've spoken about earlier the responsibility is on the consumer to change the product there's then the designer can do whatever they want and make whatever they want with the product mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which also doesn't mean that i'm going to stop playing dnd that was the hard thing <laughs> it's like you know like i've run into these sorts of things before i'm like oh dnd is problems but also it's so pervasive that like all i can do is say okay we can play it differently mm-hmm there's this discussion of authorship here that I think is really interesting. Like you, like we are definitely the authors of our own characters and our DM in terms of the world that we're playing in. But how do we reconcile that with the author of the actual rule books and the people who are making money out of this? And that's something I find really difficult. And I, I don't personally think I have an answer to that. But there, two seconds, Sabrina. This, Never gonna stop playing yeah. though. <laughs> there's this dual authorship role that's happening here where mm -hmm. um, you are both using a product to uh, as a foundation to to facilitate this completely al almost unrelated experience in a way. Yeah. Where mm -hmm. the, the fiction that you create as part of a playing of Dungeons and Dragons is informed by the content, but not necessarily bound to it uh, of the the rules mm. of published mm. by wizards of the coast and I, I think that that kind of gets at like what the responsibility is is that as players the best we can be is educated and mm. we can we can understand um how rules might contain biases or ideologies and we can use that understanding to really change the way that we reflect on those rules, change mm -hmm. the ways that we actuate those rules in play and really just kind of, you know, make sure that we're not yeah. using them to, to engage in a, in a system that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. um, a system in the kind of like cultural sense, yeah. not, not, not necessarily in the rule yeah. sense. One of the first thing to combat hegemony is to recognize there is hegemony. So I think this podcast is at least doing, you know, something. Yep, we're doing our part. We're, we did it. Uh, yeah, clean. I'm gonna yeah, go play D and D now. Clap, clap, everyone, give yourselves a round of applause. We did it. We solved the problem. We we know we, we we there was not. a problem, and that absolves us of solving it. No, it's the um, first step. I didn't say that's the solution. I, I don't think that this is a thing that can be solved. No. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, in a single podcast episode. I think it's <laughs> at, at the very best of process. All I can say is 
maybe try playing some other RPGs and see how you like yeah. them. There's plenty out there. Go, mm -hmm. go on drive through RPG, go on itch.io, you know, find something you like, because there's a lot of weird, fun, awesome games there. I got to wrap this podcast up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I gotta, I, I gotta go to class, but uh, I think we've, we've, uh, really got at something interesting here. Definitely. Um, I, I hope that it's, even if you don't care about Dungeons and Dragons, I, I hope that it's helped you think about how systems can inherit ideologies and how you as a consumer can kind of negotiate that relationship. Mm -hmm. Now for everyone's favorite epilogue to the show. We need to talk about Kevin. In which we call up our friend Kevin and ask not about the 2011 psychological thriller starring Tilda Swinton, John C. Riley, and Ezra Miller that gave this bit its name, but about an entirely different film. Let's invite him and try to get him into the call. There he is. Hello. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Good. Um, let's jump right into it. Have you seen Twilight yet? Uh, well, yes, it, this, yeah, yes or no? You just, I, a, you know, binary answer to this. Um, well, I'm going to have to, uh, I, I hate to disappoint, but I'm going to have to go with no here, buddy. Okay. <laughs> have you seen, we need to talk about Kevin. You know, I haven't seen that either. I, I, have, I have not seen that movie either. I don't think anyone on the show has seen that movie. Yeah, that's kind of, I get the like cleverness of the title in terms of the... Well, so, so that kind of, you know, makes me wonder what exactly is the joke that's going on? I like, your name is Kevin. And I guess instead of it being a psychological thriller, we ask you about Twilight. But where does Twilight fit into the name of the bit? I mean, maybe maybe this what this bit will like turn into a psychological thriller. Maybe maybe that's right, right. Where like you get so tortured by it that you just go insane, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Or or we go so tortured by you refusing to watch Twilight. I guess, yeah. I mean, viewers stay tuned to like season two and three, I guess. All right. All right. Kevin, I've turned the recording off. You can speak honestly. You, you can tell me the truth. Do you have any interest in watching Twilight whatsoever? All right, well, okay. So here's my thing, Dan. It's been hyped up so much. Like there's been, like it's been hyped up so much by our, our fellow uh, cohort members. Like I don't, I'm, I'm always wary of things that are hyped up a lot, you know? Like I think I, think, uh, I talked to you about um, The Witcher 3. And it's like, I was so hyped up. I didn't play it for the longest time. You know, the yeah. And I was like, oh, man, it's probably hyped up too much. Like, it's probably not as good as people say. So that's, that's kind of the mindset I have. Like, man, is it, could it possibly be that good? I don't know. Uh, probably not. That's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. Before we go, our producer Laura wanted me to issue a correction. In this episode, Dan said that Gary Gygax developed D&D in Michigan, 
but it was actually in her home state of Wisconsin. It was very important to her that I make this clear, even though, as discussed in the episode, Gary Gygax was a big misogynist creep, so I'm not exactly sure why. Media Literate is a collaborative podcast produced by Colton Elsie, Sebastian Wurzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, and Julia Rose Camus. Thanks again to this week's hosts, Dan Hawkins, Anne Zhang, and Sabrina Sonner, who, by the way, has seen We Need to Talk About Kevin. Sabrina also edited this week's episode. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Chiel, and our logo was created by Julia. <laughs>